Father, we thank you for so much that you have done for us. The time to really grasp or understand how fully you have extended yourself in giving so much of yourself to be with us, to walk among us, to restore fellowship. would be so long. In the midst of our hurried state of living, the busyness that we put ourselves through day in and day out, sometimes necessary, sometimes not. I ask that you draw us closer to you. Renew our minds to grasp how great a thing it is that you've done for us. But Father, we don't want it to just stop in our own hearts and our minds. As your people, bring us to a place where you so overflow our lives that the lives then that we touch in turn, our spouses, our children, our friends, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our community group leaders, the people that we meet at work, whoever it might be, may we be cups that overflow with mercy and grace. As we follow Jesus, as hard as it may be when we operate with our own agenda, we ask that you form Christ in us in a way that allows people to see how great and how good you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to talk today, I know that you're hopefully expecting to hear Pastor Dave talk about part two from last week, but that's going to be next week. And so he put me in between here as he's in Virginia today, and I wanted to talk about humility and service and how that affects our marriages as well as our other relationships. I read the other day of a man named Bob who attended a seminar on personal relationships, and after having attended the seminar, he became convinced that he needed to do a better job of showing appreciation to his wife. So on his way home from work, he picked up a dozen long-stem roses and a box of chocolates. As he was walking up, the, uh, up to the house, he was eager to see how excited his wife would be at the example of appreciation that he was about to show her. As Bob walked in the door with a big grin, he met his wife in the hallway, and she burst into tears. What's wrong, honey? Bob asked. It's been a terrible day, she exclaimed. First, Tommy flushed a diaper down the toilet. Then the dishwasher quit working. Sally came home from school with her legs all scratched, and now you come home drunk. It's a joke. I start out that way because when you think about it, how many married people jokes do you hear where the punchline proclaims an undying love for one spouse. Does anyone know a joke like that? I don't know if it even exists. Because in a lot of ways, even in the church, kind of seeps in that marriage is not necessarily the best of things and that there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in marriage and it's really hard and it's really difficult. 
when I uh, married my wife, I was explained a certain tradition in Korea where they used to pick the husbands up and hang them upside down and then beat their feet so that he wouldn't run away after the wedding night. Kind of makes you think, what is that view of marriage that's going on there? Even in our terminology, what do we hear sometimes when married couples are talking about a spice, a spouse, not a spice, because I want you to have <laughs> spice in your marriage. But sometimes you hear something like, oh, that old ball and chain. And it's really interesting because if we looked at the Bible, those things don't even show up on the radar screen. What we really see and even saw as a glimpse last week was that marriage is not only a God thing, but it's a good thing. It's a relationship that should really bring a lot of joy in our lives, and yet it seems in a cultural sense, it's a lot easier to put marriage down than it is to put marriage up on the pedestal where it actually belongs. Now, I really believe that there should be joy in marriage. There should be a lot of joy in marriage. Now, if you're Heath, you have joy in your marriage 24-7. Only because you're sitting in front. I was wrestling whether or not, but since you're sitting in front, I figured I would say that anyway. What I want to do today is I want to look at Philippians, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And I want to look at two things that we kind of think are a burden, humility and service, and see instead how they really bring joy to our marriage relationships. So let's read those. It's a little bit of a long read. If it were community group, I'd let you read it by yourselves. Because I would imagine a lot of you have different versions, but I think the guys are going to put it up here as I read along as we go through this. In the NIV, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, to understand this passage, I want to be clear, first of all, that Paul is not dealing with marriage here. He's dealing with relationships within the church. 
But these are principles that as we move through this are principles that will bring joy to any relationship that you're in, but it will specifically bring joy to your marriage relationship. What's going on here in Philippians? Well, as we're reading these verses, it would seem that there is tension going on in the Philippian church. And what Paul says in verse 27 is very simple. Whatever happens to me, whether I live or whether I die, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying is this. Listen, church at Philippi. You have some relationship problems in your midst. And in chapter 4, there's two women that are having an argument, maybe creating factions. He's saying, in the midst of these, when people who are outside the church or even coming to church, and they see this tension and this conflict, their immediate action or reaction is probably this. If this is what Christians are like, they are no different from me, so why do I need Jesus? So Paul says, listen, church, live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So when you have these relational tensions, realize that it is wrong. Realize that it is sinful behavior and that when people look upon you, they don't see Christ, but they see people. And you don't want them to see people. You don't want them to see you for who you are acting like, but you want them to see Christ. So his call is for them to live differently in the way that they handle their relationships. He goes on then and he says this. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. And I like this word stand firm here because what basically Paul is saying is this. In a military sense, stand shoulder to shoulder with each other. Stand in a battle line preparing for attack. And as you stand there, stand firm, which means he's dealing with not just their action, but also their attitude, which is, I will not leave you. I will stand here. I am determined to die here if I must in order that you might live. In a sense, it is a modern way of saying, I have your back. If we were to take it to our wedding vows that we make when we get married at the altar, it is for richer or for poorer, for sickness or in health, I will not leave you. There is nothing that will change what is going on in my heart and in my life. I will stand firm. I will stand with you. So Paul is wanting them to understand that if they are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, they must have this attitude of standing together. Because in a military sense, if you form a battle line and two or three guys decide, I'm a little nervous here, and they take off, it's most likely that when the first two or three go, four or five will follow. And then maybe everyone else will turn around and run. Now, I don't know how much you guys like history, but in the Civil War, there was a battle before Gettysburg called Chancellorsville. And Stonewall Jackson attacked one side, in a, in a sense a miraculous way, as the Union saw it, but as he attacked one side, as these Union soldiers fled, basically the Confederates had an easy victory because certain men had decided that we will not stand firm, but we will run for our lives. And it was a disaster. Until a few weeks later at Gettysburg, when Joshua Chamberlain, with the 20th Maine, stood on Little Round Top and said, we will not leave this position because if we do, the entire Union line will be wrapped up. 
You see, that's the picture that Paul is painting. It's a picture that we need to bring in our relationships. Now, how many of you had high school relationships? Boyfriend, girlfriend type relationships, not just any relationships. A lot of us, right? You can be forgiven for that. That's okay. But in relationships, many times we stayed in those relationships based on what we could get out of the person. And when we were done getting what we wanted, basically that was when we stopped liking them and the relationship ended. So maybe a relationship would ask a week or a few weeks or a couple months, but it never really lasted and probably were not intended to last anyway. It's when we're looking at those type of relationships that you really see that people are not willing to stand firm together. And again, I'm not encouraging you to, if we're high school kids here, I wouldn't encourage them to date in high school and then stay with that person until they got married. But the idea that I'm trying to communicate to you is that when we get together, especially when you make a covenant before God and the church, it is, I will stand firm, I will stand next to you no matter what. In other words, in simpler language, divorce is not an option. You see, when the church believes that divorce is an option and a watching world sees that people who call themselves followers of Christ decide that their marriage relationship is a little too much and it's time for me to take off, then they understand one thing and it's this, is that the church is not really the church and we're not really following God. If we can... As a church, especially in our marriages, stand together, the world can see that actually marriage is a good thing, it is not a burden, and it is not a ball and a chain. Paul carries this over into chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, if, now I want you to change the word if here for a moment, and I want you to put the word since, because Paul isn't talking about conditions, but he's talking about statements of fact, and he says this, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since there is fellowship with the Spirit, since there is tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Paul is basically saying this, you are in Christ, you are in family, so then be together. Let a watching world see that you act as family. Now, one of the things about our world is that they are looking for people who have real, living, and vital relationships. If we went into the inner city, as Slip and Graham has done... Slip and Graham, wow. Slam and grip. (laughs) What's the Freudian slip there? (laughs) No idea. Do I sit down now and call it a day or what? Okay, slam and grip. What are they hungry for? Man, it's sure to get warm in here. What are they hungry for? They are hungry for people who will show them stability in relationships. They are hungry for parents who will love each other and respect each other and honor one another. They want to see that. And so what what Paul would say if he were speaking to us as a church about relationships, about marriage relationships, he would say this, you are in Christ and the world that is around you is hungering for what you have. And so let them know how good marriage is. Not only a God thing, but how good it really is and that it's something that you want to be a part of. I wonder if a lot of people are living together simply because they don't want the entanglements of marriage and the burden of what would happen if things go wrong. 
Wouldn't it be neat if the church could say living together does not have the same benefits as marriage because we are here standing together, standing firm, and we want to let you know that the person that God has brought into our lives as our spouse is someone we want to be with forever because it is worth it. It is good. It is value. It brings joy, not only to you and your relationship, not only to those who are watching you, but also to your children and your children's children and so on. And so on. Paul wants them to see that relationship, relationships with each other, is a very important way in which the church shows a watching world that Jesus Christ is real. But he goes on and he says this. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, what I like here about this is that Paul does not list actions. Paul talks about your attitude, not your actions. Now, mind you, in the following verses, Paul is going to point out the actions of Jesus. But before he gets us to see the actions of Jesus, he wants the Philippians to grasp onto the attitude of Jesus. Now, having an attitude is a good thing because we know from experience that our actions don't necessarily reveal what our attitude is like. For instance, not with my kids, mind you, but maybe with other people's kids. But there are times when parents will ask their kids, their teenagers to do something and they will do it, but they may roll their eyes or they may grumble under their breath or they may stomp off and do whatever it is that you're asking them. As a parent, even though they think they are hiding it, you can see it because you've been there before and you know that their action may be that they are listening to you, but you know that their attitude is not with you at all. That's not what Paul is calling for. Paul is calling for something that is, is much more deeper than just doing something because you're supposed to do it. How many times do we do things that God asks us to do because we're supposed to do them because it's the right thing to do, but we really don't grasp that God also wants the attitude to come along with that action? If Paul lists a bunch of actions, or even if I give you a bunch of actions today, you may leave here and think, if I simply do these things, then I have truly served my wife. So I could say to you, You blew it this weekend with your wife, so go home, but before you do, get some flowers and get some chocolates, and then tell her that you're sorry. Now, what's going to happen if you go home today after you blew it this weekend with some flowers and with some chocolates, and you give them to your wife who's sitting next to you, she's going to say what? And rightly so, perhaps. You only did it because he told you to. There won't be the attitude that goes with that. You may go home... And your wife might say, I don't like flowers. Or I've given up chocolate for Lent. So what you've done here is miss the point. Paul would say, have this attitude, which is in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't give actions because he wants you to think through your situation and think to yourself, what is it that I can do? What attitude that I can actually have that embraces with humility and a desire to serve my spouse? Your situation is different from my situation, which is different from somebody else's situation. So Paul, I think, if I can put this on him, 
refuses to give specific actions because he wants the Philippians to develop attitudes and not just actions alone. The truth is that when your attitude is one way, the actions will follow unless there is a fear of something that will cause you consequences that you don't like. So if you're looking again at kids and teenagers, when they do what you want them to do, but they don't have the attitude, the reason is because they don't want to be grounded or lose privileges. In the same way, many times as spouses, we do things because we don't want to have the consequences of tension, so we do them to get someone's, someone off our back. That's not the relationship that Paul wants people to have in church. It's not the, Paul, the attitude that Paul wants people to have when they're married. He wants them to develop an attitude from the heart that is full of joy, that expresses itself in humility and in service. Now, how does Paul get to see this? Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Here is an example of someone who has an attitude. His attitude, the attitude of Jesus, is not to only consider his interests, but also to consider the interests of those that he came to save. Now, what is really interesting about this is what Paul gives us is a picture of Jesus as God. He says it clearly. Who, being in very nature God. Jesus was God. Now, because he was God, that means before he became man and humbled himself, everything that God the Father experienced, Jesus experienced as well. So if you can imagine... 24 7 365 throughout eternity basically jesus is worshiped and praised constantly for who he is and for what he's done and in all of those things as jesus looks at that he does not grasp or cling onto that but he lets it go and humbles himself look again here he does not consider equality with god something to be grasped it's the idea of holding something tightly, very tightly. Now, how many of you as teachers or even college students are looking forward to spring break? Right? Jenny's looking for spring break. Uh, all the uh, relaxation time. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what your parents do, so please. Oh, your mom's a nurse. Okay. I know what your mom does. Don't remember what your dad did. Because we talked about it yesterday. Pretty good memory. Personal conversation. Glad you could join us. Okay. Let's say, though that your parents really own a cleaners. And you are looking forward to going to St. Louis for some odd reason over spring break. And you're looking for how much you're going to enjoy that time. But your parents come to you and they say, Jenny, we are tired. It's been a hard year so far at the cleaners. And we would really like you to give us a break for one week during your spring break from Monday through Saturday to work for us while we go to Florida for a little bit of vacation to restore our souls. You may be sitting there in your heart, clinging on to your spring break, with the depression growing, thinking that here you are about to enjoy yourself visiting the arch. <laughs> Simply destroyed. I think most of us cling on to many things and we hold on to them because we have this desire. And yet, what does Jesus do? Fully God, praised 
And I think without hesitation. And the reason I think without hesitation, even though you might look at Jesus in the garden and say, Jesus hesitated there, didn't he? Jesus really didn't want to go to the cross. He did want to go to the cross. The hesitation was a break in relationship. Jesus hesitated because he understood the depth of what was about to happen. What was about to happen was eternal relationship was about to be broken and ended for a period of time when he took the sin of the world upon himself as he was on the cross. And so Jesus, yes, he hesitated there. But as him and the Father talked about it, I really don't believe that there was hesitation. You see, because most of us, when we think of humility and service, we think of burden. But I think Jesus saw joy. Joy in that his Father could be honored and joy that people could be restored to their relationship with their Father. So I really think humility and service, instead of being a burden, truthfully is a joy. For Jesus, for Jesus, there was joy in restoration. Now, I would be honest with you, as I'm thinking about this through the week, I feel, as my parents, my dad is 86, my mom is 83, still alive. I, though mentally prepared, I don't think I am emotionally prepared for the separation of when they die. I'm not ready for that. Many of you have probably already lost parents, but I'm not ready for that. I would not be ready if my wife were to die or my children were to die. I cannot imagine what Abraham was able to do by willingly sacrificing or getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. He'd already done it in his heart and in his mind. And I think I can't do that. So when I think of Jesus, Jesus doesn't cling or grasp on to his equality with God, but he freely lets it go in humility and service. Why? Because as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him. See, I think if we can bring that into our marriage relationships, you know, I like it when my wife is happy. How many of us like to be in relationships with negative people? Don't you like to hang around with negative people who are always complaining? Always saying, you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. Why can't you ever do it right? There's no joy in that, right? But all of us in relationship want our friends, want our family members to be experiencing joy. We want them to be happy. It's great when my wife comes home because every time she walks in the door, she says, hello, I'm home. Why? Because she's happy to be home. And maybe not always running out to see her because we're in the middle of something, but we're happy that she's home too. There's a sense of joy in relationship. And that's what Jesus says. You know what? I am not worried or concerned only with the fact that I am God, but look what happens. He humbles himself. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. In other words, what Paul's saying here, the very nature of God is who Jesus was. He is God. When Jesus came down to walk the earth and to walk among us, he did not act like being a man. He became a man. He became just like us in everything. Now, for those of you that have little kids, you kind of understand as you're teaching your kids how to speak uh, English, you kind of go through the animal books, right? What do cows do? Moo. Uh, what do owls do? Hoo, hoo. That kind of stuff. And uh, we had this little book. There's four animals in there. It's cat, dog, something else. Um, we're teaching Kaylee what does a lion do, so now she roars. Uh, in the past, we've taught her what do doggies do. And, uh, you know, we go, woof, woof. And she goes, woof, woof, as well, because that's the kind of response that she's beginning to learn the language. 
when I am doing woof woof, I am not a dog. You might look at me and say, you're not very good looking, so maybe you are a dog. But that's not the kind of dog I'm talking about. I am not a dog. If I got on all fours right now and barked and ate dog food, I still would not be a dog. Because that is not in my nature. I am a person. What Paul is saying here is, Jesus did not pretend, but he actually became just like us. He humbled himself. He served us. He put our interests in front of his interests, though his interests were also important because what he wanted to do was to bring joy not only to the Father, but also bring joy to us and restore relationships. Jesus had all of these privileges and yet he willingly gave them up because he understood that humility and serving one another brings joy. If you're looking at the relationships that you have and you're struggling with that relationship, even if it's your marriage relationship and you're seeing that there's tension and difficulty, try this. Try in humility to serve one another. Now, I cannot make you the promise that your relationship will automatically change. There may be some things that have been built up over the years that have to be worked through. But when two people come together and their intent and purpose is to humbly serve one another in relationship, especially in a marriage relationship, there will be a lot of joy in that relationship. I think one of the vows that we should really take when we get married is, I promise to give my life to humbly serve you to make you a better person in Christ. My goal, my life, my standing firm, my I got your back attitude is this. I will be with you and whatever it takes to make you to be the person that God wants you to be, I will be that person to help you get there. That's what Paul, uh, uh, Pastor Dave was talking about last week. How that suitable helper comes along and says, we are in this together. We have a purpose. Divorce is not an option. Joy is. Joy is the only option that we will seek as we live out our marriage relationship. Now, the twist in this, unfortunately, is that the cross is loaded with pain and suffering. And sometimes in Christian jokes, we say, I'm going home to carry my cross to deal with my spouse. It misses the point. And again, I cannot promise that things will be changed automatically or instantaneously. But serving someone else is not a burden. It is not a burden at all. Jesus may have carried the burden of sin on the cross, but to him it wasn't, oh, I have to do this? Really? Without rolling his eyes, without stomping off. But his attitude, the attitude of Jesus was to serve in order to bring joy. Now, when we humble ourselves and consider the interests of others as more important than our own, our relationships in time will be experiencing more joy. What destroys relationships? As I share when I do premarital counseling or even in my messages at the wedding day itself, one of the things that destroys relationships is selfishness. Selfishness destroys relationships. If you want to live for yourself, please don't get married. Because it not only affects you, it not only affects your spouse, but it also affects your children. And some of the premarital counseling we do, we talk to the children about the relationship with their parents. 
that means you're also affecting their children's children as well. Selfishness destroys relationships. Jesus, again, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who in the very nature of God, slipped down a little bit, took on the very nature of a servant, being made in himself uh, in human likeness. Jesus shows us relationships flourish when people are willing to humbly serve one another. What was Jesus' reward? Death on a cross, the end of verse 8. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That was his reward here. During his life, what did he face? Constant blasphemy. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was crucified. But Jesus didn't look only at the cross. He looked beyond the cross. Look how God rewards him. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus looked at our interests and his interests. He brought them together in humility, with joy, in humility and with joy, served us. What Paul calls us then to do in our relationships, what Paul would call us to do if he were talking only about marriage here, in our married relationships, is to stop looking towards your own interests. Do not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, in verse 3. But consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Do you ever hear the song that says, what the world needs now is love, sweet love? Does anyone know that song? Anyone probably over 35 would know this one. So don't raise your hands because I don't want to call you out. But there's a song, and I'm not going to sing it because you'll know that I don't lead worship, but it's what the world needs now is love, sweet love. But I think it's more than that. And I think what the world needs to see is God as revealed in good marriages and families. Then they'll see that love, sweet love. Then they'll see when we love one another with a love that goes beyond what everybody else has. Where neighbors, where neighborhood kids can see your marriage and say, that is what I want. We don't want people getting married just because it's the next step in your relationship. It's because they have a passion, they have a joy, and they have a desire to make someone a better person. Not in your image, because that can get warped really fast, can it? But in God's image, that is one of the primary goals of marriage as we come together. How can we serve God together? How can I serve you to serve God even better than you really can? That is the goal of marriage. Now, we often talk in our church now about being missional. What does it mean to be missional? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to the prisons or you have to do some HIV AIDS ministry. What it does mean is live in a manner worthy of the gospel in your relationships especially your marriage relationships, and that's being on mission with Jesus in your community. Jesus' call is for us to humbly serve one another. But what I want you to leave with this is with this. I don't want you to leave here as an army of servants. That would have missed the point. What I mean by that is I don't want you to leave here and now when you go down the stairs, you're holding doors open for people, you're getting them coffee, you're getting them something to eat, you go home and do all these servant things. What I'm really calling us to do, and what I believe Paul is calling us to do, is to have this attitude, which is in Christ Jesus. So don't leave here as an army of servants. Instead, leave here as a group who follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. 
follow the attitude of Jesus. And that attitude will influence your actions. And then we will see that a watching world sees that marriage is a great thing. It's a thing filled with joy. It's a thing filled with hope. It's a blessed, not only a blessed event, but a blessed state. Let's pray. Jesus, there is joy in you. But there's also joy in relationships. There's joy in marriage. It's, it's, a, it's a God thing. It's a you thing. It's a great thing. My prayer for every person here, married or unmarried, is that you would help us develop the attitude that is in Christ Jesus. One that seeks to serve the interests of others, not only our own interests. Father, it would change this church, it would change our marriages, and it would change our families if our attitude, 24-7, 365, was one of humility and service. Not because we want to experience joy, but because it is a joy to be like Jesus. Father, I ask that you work this work in the lives of those who are married and are struggling through their marriage. I'd ask that you would work this work in the lives of those who have good, sound, solid marriages, that they may continue to do that. That as a church, the world may see not us in our marriages, but you in the midst of our marriages. May our attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.